This episode of the MJ Cast is brought to you by Crack Corn, the ridiculously delicious ultra premium puff corn. Not popcorn, puff corn. Buttery, sugary, salty, and sweet, you've got to try it. Head on over to crackcorn.com slash the MJ Cast for an amazing deal just for our listeners. And they ship right to your door. It tastes amazing. And they're proud to be our first ever sponsor. Show Crack Corn some love. Crackcorn.com slash the MJ Cast. The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass, we become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. Damien, how you doing? Good, man. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. What have you been up to? I just polished off a zinger. Love me some KFC. <laughs> Trying to survive the current state of the world. Trying to work as much as I have been, but earning <laughs> almost nothing. And that's the same as just about everybody else out there. So I think we're all in a very similar situation right now. It's a crazy, crazy moment in time, but it, I think it all puts us on a level playing field and lets us kind of see each other for who we really are rather than what we do because right now most of us are doing nothing. How has your job and livelihood been affected by this? I'm a privileged person. I'm an Australian person living in Australia. We have the government. We have a, a, a good system that allows us to get benefits and whatever. But as a job, as my income, I'm a, a private driver. So I have a number of private customers who contact me when they need to go from A to B. And I also utilize the rideshare apps to get more bookings when I'm not doing private jobs. And really, like there, there's almost no work at all. Yesterday, I didn't have a single job, so no money. Today, the same thing. Uh, no jobs, no money. And normally, it's not like that. I live on the Gold Coast. It's a very busy place. It's a tourist city. It has a huge tourism industry. People going everywhere all the time, but nothing's open, so people can't go anywhere. And a big part of my work comes from people who are using the hospitality side of things. So people going to restaurants, bars, cafes, nightclubs, those kinds of things, sporting events, concerts, and none of that stuff is happening. So those are my customers and I don't have them anymore and I won't have them until a bit more normality returns. So, but it's, you know, the same for everyone. Everyone's hurting in different ways and everyone has different jobs and if they still even have a job and yeah. But it's making it's it's taking a big toll. Yeah, I can imagine. It's interesting as well for teachers because we um, fortunately don't have the situation where we're out of work. But it's almost like we we truly don't have an option to to not go to work. We have to go and face a thousand people every single day, and uh, probably we'll get COVID nineteen. It's terrifying coming home to my family and my two year old thinking there's a high chance I'm going to bring this home. It's crazy, really. I don't know what the situation with testing is, but surely they could, if people are in jobs like government jobs where you have to go and you have to deal with a lot of people, 
I don't know what the, the cost of testing is or how easy it is to do or how fast a result can be drawn, but surely like at least at the end of every week, if not the end of every day, when you are going back home into your normal life after you've been in that environment, it would be nice to know <laughs> what level of distance you have to keep from your child or your partner. Like that's a scary thought to, to be going home and, and sharing a bed with your wife and to be, you know, caring for your child and not knowing if you're going to make them sick or not. So I'm in the same situation. I'm, I'm going to work every day because I need to try and earn some money. On the days that I do have trips and I do have customers, that means I'm having strangers in my vehicle. And then there's a chance of an exchange of something in that process. And I, I do keep the car sanitized between every passenger, but I'm the one who has to sanitize it. So I don't really know how <laughs> safe I actually am. The rideshare companies give you really, really detailed instructions on how to be as safe as possible. And it's mostly common sense, but it's nice to have, you know, the companies that you drive for telling you how to do it as best you can and how to be as safe as you can. But you still don't know, really. I mean, it's airborne. You can't see some of the saliva particles and different things that fly through the air and where they land and when you pick them up. And we've spent our entire lives, I'm 32, I've spent 32 years not really worrying about if I'm going to touch my eyes or, you know, try to pick something out of my teeth or, you know, anything like that. And now everything is super, 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 like, careful. But still, our nature isn't to be avoiding doing those things. And so the nature sometimes takes over and you do. <laughs> you do put yourself in a bad situation uh, where if you did have the thing on your finger or wherever, you've got it now. So, yeah, it's a scary world. Yeah, and I, I'm, you know, me, I'm naturally an introvert, a homebody, and this is kind of like, uh, in some ways, I actually quite am, in, my wife and I are enjoying <laughs> being forced to spend so much time at home. But occasionally, it is difficult to adjust to this new environment. Like, I've seen a lot of... Uh, back and forth on Twitter between people. It's been really interesting, actually. Like, uh, you and I have spoken about this, and I spoke to Charlie about it today as well. But um, I think there was a photograph that came online and on Twitter of a park in the UK or somewhere with, like, and a news report saying there were 3,000 people in the park. And I saw all this hate about it, like people quoting the article saying, those effing idiots and all this kind of thing. And then Charlie was saying, well, hang on. That's a massive park, if you know, like a really huge park. So if, you know, if, if that many people are going there, who's to say they're actually, you know, getting into each other's space? They might be quite spread out. And um, I suppose it's the same way you live. For example, you have a lot of beaches around where this kind of thing is uh, a controversial issue. Again, I feel very privileged. I li literally live on the beach in the Gold Coast, which is probably the, the nicest strip of beaches in the world, maybe of beaches that you can actually swim in, patrolled beaches. Um, I find that people down at the beach when I'm there, and I'm there every single day, I go for a run and a swim. It's still allowed to access the beach for exercise and for swimming and surfing. So I go down every day, I do anyway, for a run. And it's really, really nice. I think people are really respecting the distancing rules. Because there are no flags or designated flagged areas where you're supposed to swim now, it's kind of just a, a free-for-all. You can swim anywhere you want, knowing the risks that there aren't going to be lifeguards there. People are spread out all across the coast, but they're massive distances apart. Like, they're not, you know, 1.5 or 2 meters apart. They're like 40 meters apart. And everyone is literally finding the biggest gap between two people that they can find and trying <laughs> to 
be in between that gap. Like everyone is being as far as from each other as possible, and it's it's really, really, really nice to see. And then I go online and I see everyone complaining about the the fact that people are. It's like they're people want to think that you go to the beach and you're flaunting it in people's faces that you know <laughs> we're supposed to be on lockdown and I'm at the beach, but how can you deny people their their need to you know have sunlight and and exercise and fresh air and and that connection to mother nature i mean we go to the beach for an hour and and go for a run and a swim and and then what do we do we go back in our home and isolate and in that moment we're at the beach we're not near anyone we're not touching anyone we're not invading anyone's space and then we go home to our miserable 23 hours of (laughs) self-isolation so uh, yeah it's, it's interesting to see how different people argue one way or the other and i get it some people don't have a deep desire to be in a park or at the beach. And so they therefore think that the people who really need that in their life also don't need it. But it's it's only based on their own circumstances, their wants and needs, and, and that's how they feel. So we're all different. There's 7 billion of us on the planet. We're all different. So I think as long as we're being sensible and being smart and, and conscientious and caring about the people around us and not violating their right to space and isolation, then we should be all okay. I went for a walk this afternoon with my family through the park and there was quite a, a number of people out as well. Everybody was you know, doing the social distancing thing and not near each other or anything like that. But I found, I don't know whether it was just me being a little paranoid, but I definitely found hesitation between people as well. I don't know if you've found a similar thing, but normally when I walk through the park, everyone's always waving, hello, how are you going? Today, you know, even though I was a few meters away from someone, I'd do the obligatory wave, hello, but you might get a little smile back, but definitely not as, hey, how are yeah, you? Like, let's, let's, let's not make eye contact. We might catch <laughs> coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> you can't get coronavirus through smiling at someone. <laughs> it was a uh, bit weird for me. but <laughs> Yeah. But uh, I actually would not mind to be isolated. Like, there are a number of creative projects and specifically Michael Jackson related creative projects that I have been dying to work on for, you know, years almost. And, and my working life has been the reason and my necessity to work has been the reason that I haven't been able to kind of look at these projects. So I'm going to try and take the silver lining from the whole situation. And I really, really, really want to respect self-isolation suggestions from the government and, and the laws that they've put in place for people. And I'm going to try and put those two things together to self-isolate but be super productive in that time and and really try and get a couple of projects off the ground and I I have a few things in mind so yeah but that can't happen until I get support from the government which I haven't got yet so (laughs) I I still have to try and go to work yeah I've got to eat and I've got to you know if I don't pay my electricity yeah you're not going to get any creative projects because I won't (laughs) be able to charge my computer or get access to the internet or anything so we have to do what we need to do until we're taken care of and then we can maybe look at something else but until then i'm working so all right so let's talk about those creative projects because you haven't been on the mj cast for quite a while now i think the last uh show we did together was i think way back at uh the beginning of season five where we interviewed bill whitfield together Mm, yeah Um, i don't know if you've been on since then but you know tell me where you're up to with all of that i've kind of actually taken a bit of a break from everything just mentally I, i needed it i wasn't really happy in my in my life um a year ago so the last year has really just been for me to be able to be okay and um 
there's multifaceted uh, complex kind of explanation to what it means to be okay and you know financially mentally physically all of those things so yeah there's not too much progress probably since the middle of 2018 I wish there was I mean I'm, I'm really really excited about being able to get back to it I just don't have any updates unfortunately <laughs> there's like <laughs> there's nothing that I I mean like you don't obviously I've been researching the the Casio tracks for what nine years now and I haven't really revealed any of my evidence about that. So an update would be almost fruitless because I've kind of not really said what I've got. Things have happened in that time, but I think with these kinds of things, it's almost a little bit pointless to talk about one little piece or another little piece because we're talking about a very complex puzzle with thousands of pieces. And if all the pieces aren't in the right place, the overall picture is not clear. So hopefully the, uh, the isolation period that we're all going to be undertaking is going to allow me some some space to work on on that project and a couple of other things so and uh, I, I guess it hasn't been the most positive couple of years for us anyway as a community especially you know when we look at what, what's been going on in Vera's case I know there's still a little bit of hope there but it hasn't panned out exactly the way as fans probably would have wanted huh I mean this is the law right the law exists and and the people who allegedly break the law don't believe they have and they believe they have justification to do what they've done and the legal side of things it's, it's a long and drawn out process but the the truth of the matter is the simple fact that it's not him singing is very simple it's just not him singing <laughs> but that's not it's not that simple in the court of law and it actually doesn't even it's not even the major factor in the in the sony and the estate component of the lawsuit whether it's him or not that's more so a, a James and Eddie and Angelixson issue, which is currently completely on hold because at the moment, the only ongoing part of the case is the the Sony and the estate one. They're on a kind of back and forth battle with each other about whether or not they should even be part of this lawsuit. Sony and the estate are saying that they shouldn't be part of it. And Vera is saying, well, hang on, you sold the, the product, so you should be. So until that resolves, until we can move forward and the court can decide whether or not Sony and the estate should definitively stay involved in this case, we won't have any progress regarding Eddie James and Angelixson. What do you think about how some fans say, like, for example, with everything going on with coronavirus, et cetera, and, you know, you go online on Twitter and you might say something about the Casio tracks or the estate or something like that, things we are passionate about. And then you get you get some people come back and they're like, well, it doesn't even matter right now. You know, it doesn't matter. There's bigger things. What do you think about that point of view? I get it. And those people with their Twitter accounts are entitled to their opinion. And that's why they have their login name and their password and they go in and type their tweets and say what they want. But also, I have my own Twitter identity and my own password and my own profile picture and I type my own tweets. And what I think is important to me, I'm going to tweet about. So... I kind of really don't mind people complaining about what's important to me because I understand it might not be as important to them. And I definitely understand that there are certain moments where it's like, okay, maybe this is not the right moment to really go on about it. But still, I I think we're allowed to discuss all aspects of existence. Like things don't cease to exist because we ignore them and things, small problems don't cease to exist because big problems exist. I think there's a, there's a space and a place for everything, maybe a time for everything as well, but also there are, there are different people who are able to fight different battles. Like, for example, 
I've been researching Michael uh, and creating literature about his creative process and his artistic legacy for a long time. But then when Leaving Neverland comes along, I'm probably not the best person to take that mantle and and go and, and fight tooth and nail for Michael in that way. And there are different people for different jobs. And for example, Charles Thompson has done an absolutely stellar job at fighting for Michael in that way. Far better than I could have ever done. But, you know, I believe I can probably do other things that which are the things that I'm choosing to do better than other people, perhaps, only because of the fact that I have access to certain people and I've done certain research and I've got certain information, therefore I'm best qualified to speak about it. I think there's a space and a place and a time for everything and I'll just do me and work on what's important to me and passion's really important and if you're not super passionate about something, the results of your work aren't going to be that great either. So, you know, why tell the person who's passionate about something, don't be passionate about that, be passionate about this, because this is more important to me. Well, good for you, but not for me. I like it. Well, we better get into some news, huh? Sure. I mean, yeah, I think the first item of discussion today is going to be the as the Cirque du Soleil situation with it being shut down, and it relates directly to the the coronavirus situation we've been talking about for probably you know, 20 minutes already. So <laughs> it's all anyone's talking about right now. I say right now that there's three things in the world people are talking about is that that's the, the Tiger King documentary series <laughs> on Netflix, toilet paper and coronavirus. Let's just not talk about toilet paper for another 20 minutes. <laughs> I won some toilet paper at work the other day, actually. There was a like a <laughs> there was a, a gift bag competition and, and I got it was like a lucky dip and I got some toilet paper so Perfect. lucky me you won the meat <laughs> raffle but it's just a 24 pack of, of dunny rolls no just one roll but uh... <laughs> well I mean speaking of COVID-19 and uh, its impacts on the world Cirque du Soleil have temporarily suspended MJ1 in Vegas which I think is a good move I mean it's the only move, really. I mean, the, the, I guess they could kind of would have been forced into the situation um, by law and uh, other uh, factors, but definitely a good call. And I'm glad that they sort of acted fast on it. They actually closed it down a couple of weeks ago. They could have waited a little longer, but they didn't, which I'm glad for. And I think they've actually suspended a range of other shows around the place as well, like Beatles Love at the Mirage, etc. So unfortunately, people won't be able to go see MJ1 if they want to in the short term, but I think it's the right decision. I mean, yeah, like you said, it's the only decision. It's enforced by, I don't know in America if it's law or if, if they're still making suggestions, but in Australia, it's law. Like the states here are the law creators. So if you're in Queensland where we are, the Queensland government makes the laws here. And for example, they've made a law that says you can't sunbathe on the beach. And that is actually a law. If you violate that law, it's a $1,300 fine. And if you violate that law as a non citizen or a non-permanent resident like a you know a working holiday visa holder or a student from another country they can actually deport you for it so i don't know what the situation in the states is but i would imagine it's something similar or with a a very strong suggestion with the potential ramifications of not getting on board but it's the only decision and you know theaters and those kinds of things would be one of the worst places to be because everyone touches the the railings in the aisles and everyone is crammed in together and no one is more than 1.5 meters apart everyone's sitting kind of elbow to elbow and there's no way that you could have any of these 
Vegas shows running in this moment. So, yeah, I don't know if the, if there's a if there was a decision making process or, or if it was just we have to do this and we're doing it. But it's the right thing, obviously. And people aren't going to be traveling to Vegas anyway. So people aren't traveling anywhere. In, in I don't know. In Australia, we have our borders are closed between states. I don't know. Again, in 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 America, if you could even go to Vegas if you weren't already living there. So. I don't know. I can't really comment on that, but I know in Australia here, it's pretty like you can't cross the border. You can't go to New South Wales now unless you're a truck driver or or somebody that needs to be able to do that with like a permit. Yeah, or a returning resident, unless you live there. Yeah, but a bit of a shame in some ways because I know a lot of people like going to MJ1. And for example, my brother, Todd, who you've met, uh, he, well, his wedding was going to be in, I think, September or October. Who knows if that'll happen now? But he... um, was talking to me about what he wants to do on his honeymoon and he sent me a screenshot of uh, MJ1, like an ad for it. And he's not a massive MJ fan like like I am, but just the fact that a casual fan like that, or well, he's not really, I, I don't even know if I'd call him a casual fan, but just the fact that a regular person like that would want to go and consider that on their honeymoon itinerary speaks a lot to, I think, how that show reaches audiences beyond hardcore fans. For sure. Like uh, the perfect example is I, I went to MJ1 when I was in Las Vegas at the end of 2018. Yeah, it was Christmas 2018. And I went with James Olay and I also went with my partner at the time. And she is not a huge MJ fan. She cried three different times in the show. They were just moving moments, which footage and messaging and the atmosphere of the way it's built with sound and it affected her. And she's not someone who would even think about Michael Jackson in the in her day to day life ever. But being there in the moment and having everything happening and everything it's all consuming. It's all around you. The sound is everywhere, the visuals are everywhere. It really did affect her. So yeah, it's a shame that the people who would have been affected in that way positively, it's a positive emotion, but they're not gonna to get to experience that for a while. I mean, this is gonna pass eventually, but yeah, it's the right thing to do. Recently, a documentary came out. When I say recently, I mean like the end of last year. We haven't done a regular episode in forever. But uh, (laughs) a doco came out. I'm actually really reticent to call it a fan documentary because this French doco called Le Trait d'Amour et Michael Jackson, I probably butchered that. I think it it, uh, translates to a love letter to Michael Jackson, premiered on YouTube. And boy, it is it great. This thing, I mean, I'm, I think you've seen it as well, right? Yeah, I've seen it. I I watched it twice. I watched it once when it came out. I don't know how many months ago now. I think it was the end of last year. And I watched it again today, or most of it today. And uh, this this thing is really top notch, like high high end documentary. I don't I don't want to call it a fan documentary. I don't think it really is. I'm actually surprised it's on YouTube for free. This thing should be on television. It's definitely got a lot of inside baseball kind of little snippets of things that might not translate to the general public. So I definitely felt it was a fan documentary made by a fan, but it was professional in its quality, of course. Yeah. So that was the thing. You know, it's this is definitely a fan documentary, but of such high caliber that, like you said, it could be on television or it could be on a streaming service. And people would definitely not be scratching their head and going, you know, why is this being broadcast on television or why is this on Netflix? It's it's very, very good. I, I absolutely loved it. I was blown away. When I see fans connecting the dots of Michael's artistry 
and you can do it forever. You can dig and dig and dig and continue to find out that, that Michael was inspired by so many people in so many different areas of entertainment and different genres within those areas. It's so incredible to to really see how studied he was. You know, he took his philosophy of study the greats and become greater very seriously. And yeah, the documentary just showcases some of those elements so wonderfully. I was just, yeah, I was blown away by it. Totally blown away by it. Yeah, I love how Johan Bermal, the director, kind of explores, you know, he looks at the major influences, obviously, like James Brown, Sammy Davis, Fred Astaire, Bob Fosse. But then he he looks at a lot of the lesser-known inspirations as well, like Bill Robinson and people like that, who obviously was a massive black luminary, but you don't hear a lot of fans discussing the connection between Bill Robinson and Michael Jackson. Even things like yeah. what I what I love that he did. And I mean, mainly the documentary is focusing on inspiration around dance and visual elements of Michael's career, not so much his vocal performances or or singing. But he uses this technique where he splits the screen. So on the left side, often it's Michael Jackson's original material, and then on the right side it's the film footage that inspired him. And you'll you'll see like Tinkerbell from Peter Pan sprinkling like pixie dust over over uh, you know little children's heads, and then then on the other frame you see that pretty much same thing happening, but in the Can You Feel It music video, and just little mm. things like that make you go wow, like so much inspiration has gone into this work. I really enjoyed how it went back to the origins of how Black Americans were portrayed in film and in cartoons in the early to mid 20th century and then just looked at little things like how the Jackson 5 cartoon totally turned that on its head. Yeah. I, I liked how it chronicled Michael's career as well and I actually thought it was pretty clever how he takes you on a bit of a journey around the world and France visiting Isabelle Pettijan and there was a moment in it when he visited his friend at her house and she's a she's a the, painter. The artist? Yeah, yeah, yeah Oh yeah. my goodness. How amazing. I love that that canvas painting how the dancers' faces in Smooth Criminal were replaced by inspiration, people that inspired Michael. I would I wonder how much that's worth because that is a beautiful painting. Oh, I wonder too. It was it was spectacular. Like really. Yeah, that was yeah, I would love to see a, a high a high res version of that so I could kind of zoom in on it and kind of scroll around and it was it was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. That that was that was art. That was true, beautiful art. Yeah. It's pretty funny too. He's a funny guy. Yeah, very, very charismatic and very enjoyable. Funny and silly, but not silly in an immature way. Like you take him seriously even when he's telling a joke. It's it was really nice. This is the sort of thing I wish the general public would be able to engage with uh, on a broad platform. I'm glad it's on YouTube for free. Obviously, a lot of people will hopefully see that. But how cool would it be to have something like this on Netflix? Oh, I agree. And it's the same the same way I feel about Samar's, you know, the Michael Jackson Academia project. I mean, if he could be given a budget and resources to really make that thing as professional as it, as it could be, that would be just... I mean, even in its current form, in the, in the way he's done it just as, as free online videos, it's probably my favorite thing that I've ever seen be produced about Michael's work. It's so, so intellectual and it's it just digs really deep into into parts of Michael's psyche and his what inspired him. That I mean, the general public will never, ever, ever hear those stories unless someone is going to tell them, right? 
the hardcore fans and the historians are the only ones who will ever discover what truly inspired certain aspects of Michael's artistry. Yeah, I would love for those things to get a platform. It's the same thing, the same way I feel about um, some of the MJ cast episodes. Like I've mentioned it a few times on Twitter that the the dangerous roundtables for me, I just I could listen to them over and over and learn something new every time. It's just I'm blown away by how you can get a collection of fans to come and and sit, you know, in all different parts of the world, but together using the internet and have these roundtables where it's just literally school, like. <laughs> you won't hear you won't hear that level of true detail about Michael's work anywhere else. Like the estate could never produce anything to that level, and 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 it's the fans that do it. It's the it's the French documentary, Samar's work, the the MJ cast work. This is it. And your work, come on. Yeah, all all of our work. We all we all have the same goal. I mean, none of us above the other. We're all doing the best that we can, and with the resources that we've got, and. And, and and the reason we have to do it is because the powers that be are not doing it. So good on us. Congratulations to the fans. You're all <laughs> so, so seriously, like the the level of of, uh, of talent in, in the Michael Jackson fan community and what people are capable of producing is just unbelievable. Some of the some of these books like that the fans have produced are just amazing. Like Chris Cadman's basically got the Michael Jackson encyclopedia out. Any anything that you need to know about music or dance performance or anything that michael's ever done there's there's a a reference to it in his books and even the the free stuff like um like andy healy's 101 series they're just glorious to look at and beautiful to 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 engage with and you don't see anything like that on on a on a on a bookshelf in a in a michael jackson one gift store or anything like that you yeah they're amazing amazing stuff the fans are just so amazing I've been thinking about this a lot recently, and I guess we'll talk a little bit about this later in the show when we get to Heal the World 2020. But obviously, you know, it's no secret that the estate doesn't do the best job in terms of putting products out. Do you think the fans do such a good job because there's a bit of a vacuum left by the estate? If they were doing a great job, do you think the fans would as well? Or do you think we're sort of filling a void? It's a good question. I mean... I can speak from my own experience. I wrote the book. Originally, it was called Escape Origins, but I, I re-released it with a different title because I didn't feel it would stand the test of time with that title. And I felt that it, it said a lot more about Michael's artistry than just I'm talking about the Escape album. But I even said it in the preface of the book, like the reason I'm writing this book is because the estate has released this collection of songs and not told us where they come from. We have no information about them. They just here have these incomplete pieces of work that Michael was working on at certain stages in his life and they're all in different levels of completion and here have them, but no context. I mean, they even did a little documentary about the Escape album, but they only talked about the remixes. They didn't talk about the original works. And as a result, you get my book. And it's exactly like you said, it's because they're leaving such a void in the market where... We want to know about the anatomy of Michael's craftsmanship. Like Michael said, he wanted to know about the anatomy of the craftsman that he admired. If the estate did a a fully detailed documentary about the origins of those eight songs, and there'd be absolutely no need for my book. Like really, no need at all. And I would have never written it. That's for, for sure and certain. If they had have done something similar, I wouldn't try to do their project again. But 
they didn't do it. So I did it. Mm, I think I feel the same way. I think, I mean, uh, there would always be room for a podcast, even just as like director's commentary of the crazy MJ world that <laughs> goes on um, <laughs> with all the estate's behaviors and projects. But but in terms of the interviews we do, like if, if the estate came out tomorrow and said, we're going to put out a Michael Jackson podcast and every episode is going to be a two plus hour interview with all the people that worked with Michael Jackson. I don't know. Like if I would... I don't know. I'd feel a bit like, oh, okay. <laughs> there they go. Okay, but then you have the other the other aspect of would they ask the right questions and would we learn the information from those collaborators that, that we really want to learn? Are they going to ask about the evolution of Al Capone to Smooth Criminal? Are they going to ask about little intricate details and there's, there's nuance in the certain questions that you can ask in order to, or a follow-up question that you can ask once someone gives you the answer in order to really dig deep and find out what's far below the surface and the question would be would they be able to go deep would they actually have the ability to to give something that gives us more than what we've already got and i think that's a beautiful thing about the mj cast and the journalists like you know mike smallcomb and and joe vogel when they get their hands on a collaborator they don't just ask them the surface level questions they get deeper than that because they, they want their work to provide something new a point of difference, a reason for a fan to engage with their work that they didn't have before. And that's what's really interesting to fans, I think, is providing information about things that we don't know. You do have to give them the information they already know as well when you're doing a documentary or you're writing a book because uh, can you imagine writing a, a book about Michael's life and not saying where he was born or you know which year he died or how many number one hits he had in between. Like you do need to give information that fans have, but you need to also find a way to weave new pieces of information in there. And and I would be concerned if the estate said we're doing a podcast, I'd be concerned as to whether or not we'd learn anything <laughs> from it. So sometimes the collaborators are so amazing in their speaking about Michael that they give you nuggets without you even asking for them. They can go off on their own tangent because they know what they've done. There is so much depth to, to the, what the collaborators can talk about that you might not even know about something that they end up talking for 15 minutes about. And then you have this nugget, but you didn't even ask them about it. But I do, I do feel like there's intelligent questioning that, that leads to the moment where they feel that they have the ability to give you that much information because if an interviewer doesn't feel like they even understand what you're talking about on a surface level the person being interviewed doesn't feel like they have the ability to go deep with their answers. So mm. it's a two-way street and everybody has to be on board together to get the best result. Couldn't agree more. And, and it's a little uncomfortable as well. Like when you do interview somebody about something complex and, um, well, you know, at the moment I'm interviewing a collaborator who was deeply involved in This Is It. And without going into too much detail yet, uh, this particular collaborator... Uh, let's just put it this way, uh, probably didn't raise alarm bells in the same way that other collaborators did or with the same force. And that's something I want to talk to them about. I feel almost obliged to talk to them about it because otherwise I feel icky having people on the show and and not not diving deep because then it just becomes a exercise in promotion. And for me, it's about getting to the you bottom. You mean you of- promoting them? Or you promoting your own show? Well, often promoting them. So yeah. it, it depends on the situation. Sometimes people come to us and want to do an interview. 
in those moments, it's due diligence and it's it's cheating our listeners if we don't ask the tough questions because that's what people really want to know, right? Sure. As a listener of a podcast, you, I think what, what I really want from a podcast and you know, when I'm listening to the MJ cast, this is how I feel. I want to feel like if I was there in that moment with that collaborator having that conversation, what would I want to ask them? And you know, I want to ask difficult questions to answer because that's where you really learn. If if someone is just given the fluffy questions like, you know, what was it like working with Michael? You know, he was so great, wasn't he? Like, it, it, it does they, they can just fluff and fluff. But Michael's such a complex character that you need to really sometimes ask a question that doesn't have a pleasant answer or asking a question that might seem a little bit none of your business kind of because that's the only way we learn. Yeah. All right. So speaking of tough characters, how about this one? <laughs> Over the last couple of months while we've been on break, Teddy Riley. <laughs> Here's a guy I want to talk to one day. But <laughs> Oh, Teddy. Oh, Teddy. At some point in the last couple of months, I'm on Twitter. Someone had shared this video of Teddy doing a live stream on Instagram and playing a song a song called Joy that's a Blackstreet song that he's talked about in an interview before. I believe it was a BBC interview a few years ago saying that Michael sang the whole song. And so he's on he's on Instagram Live sharing the song with what to me at the time sounded like a Michael Jackson vocal over the top of Joy. And I'm just like, wow, yes, this is awesome. Very cool. But I had in the back of my head everything he'd done before with the Michael album. So I shared it on Twitter, <laughs> you know, <laughs> saying it was a Michael Jackson vocal and then got hit with a wall of responses saying, you know, that's not Michael Jackson. And in my head, it was like, here we go again. <laughs> yeah. And I think where where our paths cross on this was I was out working, driving, and it was pouring with rain. Like it was dangerously raining. It was very, very, very bad <laughs> rain. I see what you did there. And... <laughs> no, I didn't do that. No, I didn't mean that. But yeah, nice one. And so I get a text from you saying Teddy Riley has played an unreleased vocal of Michael singing Joy. But I was driving. So A, I'm driving. B, it was raining. So I couldn't even play it to hear it because the rain was so loud. But just on the information that you give me, I sent that text to like three other people, maybe James Allais, Dan Villalobos. Maybe someone else I can't really remember. It might have been in a group chat or something. And um, then before I'd even had a response from those people, you'd written back to me and said, fuck, it's fake. <laughs> <laughs> and I hadn't even had a chance to listen to it. Like I wasn't that interested to listen to it when I thought it was real because I thought, you know, th there's no rush because I can enjoy this in any moment that I choose and I'm going to choose a moment where I have a peaceful, quiet environment and a safe environment to enjoy it. But then when you said it's fake, I pulled my car over and I was like, okay, I really have to listen to this now because like we have to get to the bottom of it. We have to figure out what on earth has happened for this to be a situation that we have to deal with, with Teddy Riley again. And I think it only took a matter of a couple of minutes before I'm listening to it. And then you came back to me and said, oh, I've listened to the Marcus Williams version and line for line, it's practically identical like it's the same song then you, you were like what should i do what should i do and i just said why don't you just send marcus a, a message on instagram and you're like really and i was like 
why not? And so you sent him a message on Instagram and I think within two minutes he'd replied and said, yeah, that's me. And it was solved. But then Teddy continued to stand behind the fact that it was the real Michael Jackson version. (laughs) Keeping in mind, Teddy Riley is supposed to have co-written and recorded this song with Michael Jackson. Like it's the, Before it became a Blackstreet song, Michael co-wrote it and recorded the demo prior to Blackstreet recording it, and he did it with Teddy Riley. So if anybody in the world is going to be an expert or an authority on what is the true version of Joy sung by Michael Jackson, Ted, Teddy Riley should be the expert. He should be the guy. There should be no one on this planet with more authority to tell him that's not Michael Jackson. Except if it's not Michael Jackson and the person who sang it is saying, it's me, which is what happened. Unbelievable. <laughs> and so, so Marcus, he, not only did he tell me it wasn't him, but he, <laughs> he, he sent me videos uh, that he'd taken of his computer screen with the original, <laughs> the original multi-track. The original multi-track. <laughs> him singing it. The How isolated vocal. <laughs> yeah. Oh God! Oh, and the funniest thing—well, it's—it's oh, it's not funny, but we, we laugh about it because we have to, right? But Teddy Riley created this fake narrative around why he was only playing one verse, and I think he said <laughs> that you right. know I'm only playing one verse because Michael re- only recorded one verse or something like that. And the true reason he only had one verse was because Marcus, Marcus never recorded more than one, one verse. <laughs> Oh, it was just an absolute shit fest, honestly. Just an absolute <laughs> catastrophe. And it, the fact that it was Teddy Riley at the center of it was just so ironic. I know, and hilarious because it was it was just the same as before. <laughs> <laughs> really, and I asked Teddy Riley about it on Instagram and, and then I went back to check if he'd replied and I couldn't get a hold of his Instagram anymore. <laughs> he blocked me. <laughs> Dan and I tried to. Dan and I um <laughs> tried to hijack one of his live streams. <laughs> I saw. I, yeah, you told me about that. He was in there having a business meeting with someone, and we were trying to ask him about it. You were sending me screenshots about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, uh, I've tried to talk to Teddy since then, off and on. You know, like he, sometimes he'll reply, sometimes he doesn't. And, and they're just the most vague responses. Like oh, I'll send him a message saying, hey, look, I just sent you an email about this whole thing. I want to get your side of the story. Do you want to meet up for an interview? You know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> he'll reply back with something like, what, e- <laughs> what email account did you send it to? And then I'll tell him and then that's it. I won't hear from yeah. him again. I can yeah. never get a straight answer out of the guy. He'll talk to me, but only in the most abstract way. It's so, it's so funny. <laughs> Over the course of my research, I've I've made connections with some people, you know, had hour-long, two-hour-long recorded audio interviews with them. And, you know, you feel like after you've spoken to someone for two hours, that they, they would have some level of connection to you. And then you'll speak to them like six months later and they don't remember who you are but you've you, they've agreed to go on the record and do a recorded interview with you for two hours you've spoken for two hours with this person i, know. I think that's what it was like when we interviewed bill whitfield i'd, I'd interviewed him <laughs> about the casio track situation about a year earlier and i don't think he remembered me at all i just don't think he had any recollection of speaking to me before <laughs> so funny and then there's other people who like you'll you'll do an interview with them and then every now and then they just send you a message saying, hey man, how are you going? Like they just want to chat. <laughs> I know. And it's, yeah, it's, I have a couple of people that do that to me. 
Yeah, it's really kind of funny. And then there's people that have never spoken to you in their lives and they think they know all about you, like uh, yeah. <laughs> Frank Cassio. <Yeah. laughs> oh, God. Uh, I, I hold those messages that he sent to you about me and <laughs> they're on like my, my wall of fame <laughs> slash wall of shame. You're but, a mean, jealous con, Damien. Yeah, I'm a mean, <laughs> a mean, jealous man and a con, <laughs> I think is the exact quote. Yeah. You know what? Before we move on to our next topic, I, I with Teddy, it's such a difficult situation. We were texting about this last night, and the problem is with Teddy, he's genuinely one of the most talented guys in the industry. Like he is an absolute super producer. Hardcore. Hit after hit. Hardcore. And he's the real deal. Like I watched a he's got a he's got a show out at the moment. It's um available on his Twitter or wherever, but uh, with the whole coronavirus thing, he he actually did a concert from his home studio with Blackstreet. 100% live, start to finish, dancing, start to finish, and just total organic jam sessions, start to finish. And it is amazing. I've always loved Teddy, and, and I I just want, I want to, I want to celebrate him as not only one of Michael's most important collaborators, but as this incredible artist he is, but it's so hard to do that knowing the shady stuff he's done. It's a sad, he's, he's a, uh, it's an unfortunate case in the Michael world, I think, Teddy and his story. Yeah, uh, I, I do wonder how he gets himself into these predicaments. He could just be incredibly naive and just gets tricked every time. I don't really know. I mean, he claims that he was tricked into working on the Casio tracks, but my research behind the scenes reveals different. Um, yeah. So you have to take someone at face value unless you have evidence to contradict what they're saying. So it's really hard to know even to be- whether you believe what someone tells you or not. But he's an amazing talent. Even the stuff that he did on the Michael album makes me wish like, why? like it kind of makes me wish that they would have just given all the songs to him <laughs> and not yeah. having him doing, you know, Breaking News and Monster and he had a, a crack at Keep Your Head Up and a couple of others that didn't get released. And, you know, I think production-wise, it's the work that he did on the, on the fraudulent songs was really good. I uh, would love to have heard his production skills applied to other songs, like especially some of the ones that came out in Escape, actually. Like imagine a Teddy slave to the rhythm. Exactly. It was a total abomination what Timberland did to that. But Teddy Riley really worked intimately and closely with Michael for a very long period of time. And and whether or not he gets caught up in these controversies about whether it's someone's voice or not, his musical talents are legitimate. So, Agreed. Yeah. It's a shame. You you said it perfectly. Like, you just want to love him. I feel sorry for him, but he's done it to himself. I mean, you can, you can, someone can try to drag you into a situation that's bad and you can say no. You can say, that's, that doesn't sit right with me. I don't want to participate in that. Or you can say, mm, it doesn't feel right, but how much am I getting paid? Okay, I'll do it. And that's pretty much the Teddy Riley situation. All right. Let's take our first break to chat about our first ever sponsor here at the MJ Cast. And we couldn't be more excited about it. That's because it's a company started by one of our own, one of MJ fam, a member of the online MJ community and a huge fan of the show. The company is called Crack Corn. They make this ridiculously delicious ultra premium puff corn. 
And what's puffcorn? Well, you really just kind of have to try it to find out what it's like. But let me tell you, it is amazing. It's something really new and unlike anything you've tried before. In fact, uh, it was introduced just a few months ago and it's already making major waves across the snacking community. It's buttery, it's salty, sweet and delicious. It melts in your mouth with the most satisfying crunch. I took it to work the other day. It comes in tubs. When you order it, you get three tubs of crack corn. And I took a tub of it to work, put it down on the table in the staff room and it was the conversation piece all lunch. That's how good it tastes. Pretty much everyone who tries it gets excited to share it because it gets a real reaction every single time. And like I said, I'm speaking from experience. As big fans of the MJ cast, they wanted to do something special for our listeners. They created Fan Packs. It's the best crack corn deal anywhere, and it comes with a little special Michael Jackson surprise just for our listeners. Head over to crackcorn.com slash the MJ cast to try crack corn for the very first time. It's beautifully packaged and presented in what they call an eco lux gift box. Very sharp. These fabulous fan packs are shipped directly to your door or that of a friend who's about to experience crack corn for the very first time. It really is a memorable experience. You're trying something totally new. It's ridiculously delicious, addictive, and these fabulous sets are less than $20 US after a built-in discount just for listeners of the MJ cast. They're gorgeous and sure to impress. We've got a bunch of listeners who have already ordered them and received them, and the feedback has been awesome. Shout out to Dane Thompson. I know you love the crack corn. So head over to crackcorn.com slash the MJCast to try this unique small batch snack. I have a feeling it's going to blow up. That makes this your chance to be one of the very first people to try it. So head over to crackcorn.com slash the MJCast right now, snag one of those fan packs, and thank you, Crackcorn, for being the MJCast's very first sponsor. Damo, I know you love the Crackcorn as well. Mate, I love Crackcorn so much. I love Crackcorn, honestly, so, <laughs> so much. I mean... Ad read is complete, but let me just finish. I know the guy that created Crack Corn. He's a good friend of mine. And um, over the course of Crack Corn's evolution so far, and it's only a, it's a new thing, he's been sending me samples, you know, taste this, try this, share it with your friends and everything. And it's very difficult to share with my friends because I'll open the packet and, you know, have a couple of pieces and I'll be standing at my kitchen bench and I'll be, oh yeah, I'll have just two more pieces. Okay, just three more pieces. And within two or three minutes, I can eat a whole tub. It's disgusting. I feel absolutely <laughs> terrible about myself afterwards because there's actually four servings in one tub. But trust me, you can eat a whole tub just straight off the bat. And the best example of how amazing crack corn tastes is Christmas. I had a big family Christmas. Everyone brought a plate of food. And, you know, you have this big long table with all the family there and all the food is spread out. You've got, you know, beautiful cheese platters and fruit platters and, you know, cooked meals and all these different things that you, you have at Christmas. And then I just put one little bowl, I emptied a tub of crack corn into this bowl and just put it in there amongst all of this amazing stuff. And... Seriously, like the spread was amazing, but the thing, the only thing that people were kind of like asking about and talking about was like, what's this? What's this? This is amazing. <laughs> and people just couldn't stop talking about it. And like, I don't think that anybody touched any other food and already one whole tub of the crack corn got eaten, like completely gone. Nothing else had been touched. And luckily we had more in the, in the pantry. And so I emptied another thing in there and 
it was just so interesting because I hadn't mentioned, oh, my friend made this or I hadn't mentioned, oh, you know, it's something that, you know, it's, it's new and we're just seeing how it tastes. Didn't mention anything. Just put it there and let the people do their work and people went freaking crazy for it. <laughs> and uh, yeah. It's good stuff. It's, 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 it's amazing. <laughs> but it, yeah, I, I can't control myself around it. So that's the problem is like, if I have crack in the house, I'm probably going to be a couple of kilograms heavier that week because I just, I can't be sensible with it. A real song leaked recently. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's already come out. It's on the Invincible album, Privacy. But uh, the multitracks, well, the multitracks came out some time ago, actually. I spoke to a remixer. Uh, one of our favorite remixes, and he said he's you know had the multi tracks for quite a long time. He just has never used them yet. But to the wider fan, please explain why. <laughs> he he said he's not the biggest fan of the song. Ah, uh, so it's hard to be inspired to do a remix of a song yeah. you don't particularly like. Uh, I think that's okay. what's going on. Is it a this person shall remain nameless situation? Yeah, I think so because I don't I don't feel comfortable saying who's got what multi tracks, even though they probably all have them. <laughs> but yeah. you know what I mean? Okay, like, well let's yeah, just yeah. say that if, if it's the person I'm thinking of, I would absolutely love to hear their interpretation of it. <laughs> There's a particular remixer out there and I'm not gonna say their name right now because if it's the same person that you're talking about, we don't want to put him in hot water, but <laughs> I have when I when I go for a run, I just go to their I go to their particular remixes in my collection of songs on my phone and um, yeah, we get to spend 45 minutes together every day. <laughs> so so thanks for your work. I really appreciate it. He's great and he, he's probably, he's listening right now, I bet. But anyway, so okay. uh, the thing is uh, this particular acapella leaked recently on an Instagram post and it, I don't think it had been heard by a lot of the fan community. And I, I like this song. But I think it suffers a little bit from the same fate that a lot of the songs on Invincible do that were produced by Rodney Jerkins in that there's something about it that's just real busy. I like the fact that some of these multi-tracks are coming out because I think some of the Jerkins tracks in particular would benefit from a little bit of fan reworking. Well, the fans know best, don't they? That's part of the reason that some of these remixes do such a phenomenal job is they have intimate knowledge of the songs and I think they have intimate knowledge of Michael and you put those two things together and I think you can, you can get some really amazing results. Really? Mm. Yeah. I, I really like the remixes. I don't like the remixes in a, in, in the, in the sense of presenting Michael's work as if this is the version that we're going to say is the Michael Jackson version, you know, like with escape, how they front ended the album with, other people's interpretations of the songs and then back ended the album with the original versions and sell it as a new album that mm. doesn't necessarily that that doesn't sit well with me and is, I think is a very different situation when you have people creating you know new interpretations of songs for fun it's a different thing than to sell it to the public as this is slave to the rhythm but it's the Timberland version performed by Ernest Valentino at the Billboard Awards. I mean, it's just a <laughs> catastrophe. I mean, really, like, how wrong can you get? Well, there's no class. No. And it's, yeah, it's the way it's postured to the public. Like, you're supposed to consume this as if it's the the new Michael Jackson song, but it's not. It's all in the delivery. If they came out tomorrow on michaeljackson.com and said, here's a free Timberland remix of whatever song, it'd be cool. 
But it's the fact that they're putting it on an album, wanting money for it, and trumping Michael's original material by putting it on disc one. That's why it's all disrespectful. Yeah. It's the delivery, I think. So you reckon that the, the that Privacy and a lot of the other Jerkin songs suffer from... You said there's too much going on. Is that what you said? Do you mean like instrumentation-wise? Like they're too... There's too many layers of noise or... Pretty much. Not 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 the case with Threatened or You Rock My World. I think they're the exception. Certainly with Unbreakable, Invincible and Heartbreaker and then this one as well, Privacy, I feel, suffer a little bit from overcomplicated busyness of audio. And I, I just wish that the, the vocals and the melody had a little bit of room to breathe in them is all, I think. You know what my... Um observations of some of the songs on in invincible are as opposed to work that michael did in the past and we you can kind of only have this insight because people like brad sunberg have been open with the process of creating the albums that they worked on like for example the bad album brad sunberg revealed that and i'm sure other fans have already known this but if you if you didn't know it prior to attending his seminars you would learn that the tempos of a lot of the songs have been increased for release so the way that Michael recorded them is not actually the way that they sound on the album. They've just been sped up just a slight little bit. I don't think that was done with anything on Invincible, and I actually think that they suffer from that. Like Songs like Unbreakable and Privacy, they're too slow. I think that they could have benefited from a, t- a slight tempo increase to give them a little bit more more life. Even You Rock My World, I think, could have benefited from that same style of just slightly increasing the tempo not to make him a chipmunk or anything like that but just makes it more danceable the higher the tempo in 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 that style of music the more you can do with it as far as dance and and video and and yeah i think they they maybe suffered in that way but that was the r&b era wasn't it It was like the the new the new wave of r&b at that time and and everything was a little bit slower Looking back in hindsight, I think I think they they could be sped up a little bit. That's just my personal opinion. But who am I to argue? Michael released it how he released it, so that's the way. It's that's his way. So I think you're onto something there because I was watching Bad Yokohama last night, my favorite MJ show ever, by the way. And mm-hmm. and yeah, there are. I haven't, we haven't seen Bad in New York City, 1988. I think that could be my favorite Michael Jackson show ever but I've just never seen it before. (laughs) Well, hopefully one day. What is it special about that show? Some of the songs like Smooth Criminal uh, have live vocals, right? Smooth Criminal, Bad, and The Way You Make Me Feel are live. And in the second leg of the Bad Tour, they were not live in any other shows. So, It's like the holy grail of MJ shows. It has our favorite songs live. It's indoors, so the sound and lighting is going to be a lot more controlled and hopefully better recorded. And there's that crazy infamous kiss moment in the middle of the way you make me feel. <laughs> mm, yeah, really. I think it really is the pinnacle of Michael Jackson as a live performer. Just, I just wish that the second leg had Shake Your Body. That's the best song of the two tours combined. <laughs> I the know. Best. Anyway, back to your point. I've distracted you from your point about you were watching the Yokohama show and you had some thought about something the tempo was is faster in a lot of the songs on victory and in bad he speeds up a lot of the songs like billy jean and i think you're right i think you're onto something that that michael's songs when they're sped up just a touch he seems to be more into it maybe that's what invincible suffering from a bit who knows the yeah. debate continues 
I mean, people have been de- debating about what's wrong with Invincible since I became a fan. <laughs> yeah. People should just stop wasting their time debating about what's wrong with Invincible and just spend their time debating about what's right with Invincible. A, because it's more positive, and B, it's a much shorter debate. There's a lot less. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Right. I, I don't want to be like the Invincible hater, but you know. Oh, God. There's some moments of greatness. Break of Dawn is magic. Well, I don't like that song personally. Really? But you have to remember that Michael's, Michael's probably the most talented studio musician in the history of music. So, you know, his worst studio album is still better than most people's best studio album. And we judge him on a scale of his best work to his worst work, if you can call it worst, but it's only on a scale. It's not bad work. It's just it's just not Billy Jean. So, I mean, being critical of his work is really difficult. And he even said this, like, everybody wants the next thing to be better than the previous. And, you know, I'm the guy that did Thriller. So, how is that going to be possible? So... Uh, I, I think I, it's I think it's fun to joke and have a light-hearted. I mean, it, it depends where in your heart it comes from. I'm not hating on Invincible from my heart. I'm just kind of making light of the fact that it's <laughs> it's not his most acclaimed album. And for me personally, and I'm just me, and I'm not speaking for anybody else. I don't particularly like it. I don't listen to the album. I can't remember the last time I listened to it from beginning to end. But yeah. So, uh, change of gears, big change of gears. <laughs> okay. Um, Wait, Cassie. no, let's stay with it. Rodney what? Jerkins. What about him? Oh yeah, at least something on his. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> I never, I didn't see the live stream that he did, but there's this ridiculous snippet floating around the internet of something totally inaudible. I have no idea how he was playing it, or you know. Well, apparently it's called Rampage. So it's Rampage again, because he's played Rampage before, but he, there was no vocals on what he was playing the first time he played Rampage. The Rampage was the title that I saw on the YouTube video that a fan uploaded, so I don't know if it actually was Rampage. Did it actually come from a, a real Rodney Jerkins live stream? I, I, have, I haven't looked into it at all, and I don't know if the source is even... The, the source that people are saying that it's from is actually even the true source. Did it definitely come from a Rodney Jerkins live stream? Like, is he sitting on his computer with his or with his phone streaming himself live and like going on his computer and trying to release things that could be worth millions of dollars on the internet for free in really shitty quality and potentially facing a lawsuit from the estate who claim that these songs don't even exist? The only the only reason that I that I even think of it as a live stream is because. The YouTube description says from a Rodney Jerkins live stream, and it was uploaded okay, like so, a few days ago. So you and I together have absolutely no information about the true origins of this thing, and we're just judging the recording for what <laughs> we can hear. But we don't—we we really don't know where it came from. We know—we don't know where it came from, but it definitely did the rounds. Like this snippet did the rounds on Twitter, uh, in our friend circles, in group chats. Like it definitely was. And we haven't there got any before. friends that were saying, "Oh, that didn't actually come from a Rodney Jerkins live stream." Like, no. No, I haven't heard anyone I get a little say bit, I get a little bit weary of kind of listening to something that I don't know where it came from. I don't know where it came from either, but I hadn't heard the snippet before. And to me, it sounds legit, but it is in extremely poor quality. It sounds The thing like- that I heard was like two seconds and it sounded like it was being played on a speaker through a PVC pipe 
down a shower drain and out the back of a goat's behind. Like, I couldn't really tell what it was. Yeah, it's... You know what? I don't know either what it is, but the vocal to me sounds like it's got that MJ feel, but I'd, I'd be interested to hear what listeners think of the snippet. So it'll be in the show notes. It is only five seconds long or something like that. It's sort of like that can't get your weight off me snippet that leaked ages ago. It's, yeah. about, it's about that length. What did you think of can't get your weight off of me when the snippet leaked? I, again, thought it was him. And I like... No, not whether it was him or not. Um, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about like you can't... When I'm talking about Rampage, I'm saying I can't even hear like... The music, like, I don't even know what's happening. And it just sounds so crap that, like, what am I even listening to? Can't Get Your Weight Off Me was a bit more clear. I, I'm, I'm also asking you, like, did you think based on six seconds, oh, that's going to be a good song or that's not going to be a good song? Because, for example, in 2010, when I think, like, five seconds of Do You Know Where Your Children Are leaked, I was just like, oh, my God, that is phenomenal. Like, that, I, I fell in love with, like, this tiny little snippet. I remember people making whole remixes out of the snippet. <laughs> yeah, and it, because it just sounded amazing. Like, for me, that had everything that I want from a Michael Jackson song. And, it, and then when we finally got the full version, it didn't disappoint. It was exactly what, what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. What did you think of Can't Get Your Weight Off Of Me? Or what did you imagine it would be when you heard the snippet? And then, and then how do you feel about it, the, the full song? Well, I like it. I know a lot of people think it's sort of just like a weaker privacy or a weaker invincible. And I don't even know if I would call it a demo because it sounds pretty complete to me. Like it's got full lyrics start to finish. And obviously it's got melodic components that are similar to... I don't think it's a demo at all. Would you say that We've Had Enough is a demo? No, but what I would say is when a song evolves to become something else and it has elements of a song that ends up being something else, one could make the argument that it's a demo. I don't, I, like, True, that's a good point. It's It's got elements of invincible and privacy in there. There's no doubt about that. So it's clear that two different songs came out of this one idea, but it is complete. Like it sounds complete and I quite like it. It could be the opposite though. It could be that they had two songs and then they tried to make a best of ah, and then yeah. they went back and said, no, no, those two originals are better on their own so this is this is the thing with origins and this is the thing with you know if the estate were ever to release that song i would love them to actually get the original creators of the song to talk about where it came from and 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 at what stage of the evolution of all of those songs in in the invincible sessions it existed because that's really interesting in what part of the timeline did did smooth criminal and al capone come along that's a it's a curious thing to know, and it's a similar thing with this. Like it's you, you, we assume one thing, but it might not be true. And sometimes we assume something forever, and it becomes folklore, and we kind of believe that we've solved the mystery, and then we learn that it's not actually true. I just want to know the truth. Like if we can just know the truth straight away, that'd be great. Thank you, but <laughs> unfortunately, but that's part of the fun digging. I like can't get your weight off me because I feel like it's got what the other songs I mentioned earlier doesn't have. It's got a bit more sparseness. It's a bit more street to me. And it's a bit more raw. And some of the other songs that didn't make it onto Invincible that were recorded for the album, like We've Had Enough. I think I think Rodney's best work 
except maybe Threatened and You Rock My World, his best work with MJ didn't make it onto the album. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that we've had enough. I mean, for me, it's probably my favorite unreleased Michael Jackson song. It's a sweeping statement, and I haven't really put too much thought into all of them. I love Do You Know Where Your Children Are as well. It's probably those two. They're probably my two favorite unreleased MJ songs ever. Oh, and What More Can I Give? But that kind of got released. Speaking of those Invincible sessions, another leak happened recently. Frank Cassio, I think. We don't, we're not sure it's him, but another video surfaced on the Gotta Have Rock and Roll dot com youtube channel which is usually where frank cassio tries to auction things off like michael's dirty underwear yeah the most illegitimate auction house i've ever known of i've got stories about them i've got legitimate stories about them the Mm. the snippet that came out is actually i don't know how many minutes of video i think it might be five minutes or something but it's got three snippets within it the first one is some kind of birthday party. Michael's at a birthday party. It might even be his own party. And he's, you know, kids are around him. Like, um, I think you can see um, Brett Barnes and people like that. It's a bit boring, whatever. And then the end snippet is pretty cool. It's it's uh, Michael hanging out with Nelson Mandela. They're walking around and Michael's wearing that really cool dragon design shirt, which I love. But the middle bit is the most interesting. It's really dark video, but... Again, it's one of those songs that didn't make it to Invincible. It's Michael recording Fall Again in the studio. First time I think we've Mm. seen it. No, no, no. That footage of that has come out before, but I think this is different footage. I didn't watch any of the footage of the birthday party. I skipped past it, and I also didn't watch the footage of the Mandela part. But it's really kind of funny that um, Frank Cassio is giving us evidence of how Michael Jackson goes about recording a song in the studio considering the predicament that his brother's in, which is going to have to prove that Michael recorded songs he didn't record. And this is the kind of stuff that would exist if he had. And on the video, you see him, you know, shuffling the the notes of the paper and talking about the song. And it's interesting. And it's interesting to physically see him because, you know, when you're listening to an album, you're only hearing the voice. Sometimes you know, difficult to imagine what the artist would look like, but then he's right there in front of you on this video. It's it's nice. Yeah, I, it, it looked surreal to me. I'm going to have to go back and watch it again because it's exactly the same vocal that's on the Ultimate Collection recording, but he's moving around a lot and the vocal seems to sound exactly the same. Like at some points he'll he'll move back a full like, 40 centimeters or whatever from the microphone but it sounds exactly like it does on the record so i don't know whether they've overlaid the album audio over the top of that video to make it sound like it's him recording that or whether it is legitimately him singing that but it was interesting to look at i'm not a musician and i've never recorded vocals for a song before but think back to the we are the world footage of him recording you know, he's doing it over and over and over and over again with Quincy. And each time he is singing and it looks pre-recorded. But then if he stops singing, the voice disappears, right? Like, it's interesting to see how that works in the studio. And also, like, where's the camera positioned? And is it picking up what's going into the microphone? Or is it picking up playback that's playing along with Michael? Is he doing a background vocal like a layer underneath what already exists and 
I have no idea, but I actually didn't. I watched it once, and I can't even remember what you're talking about with the, <laughs> him moving around and and the studio version, blah blah blah. So I probably should have watched it more than once. But and I think I just woke it up when I watched it. But but there is actually quite extensive footage of him in the studio doing that song, that same song from the same tapes. I would assume. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's quite a few minutes of him doing Fall Again that came out maybe last year. It's a song that I definitely wish he had finished. I like it. Mm. I have an interesting story about the reason it didn't get finished. It comes from Corey Rooney, who's the producer who was the vice president of Sony Music in the late 90s, early 2000s, and who wrote She Was Loving Me, which Michael recorded at the Hit Factory in New York City at the same time that he did fall again and the way Corey recalled the story to me was that the song was written by Walter Afanasiev Afanasiev okay <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it's Afanasiev everyone calls him Walter A and I think there's a really good reason for that <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it was recorded uh, it was he was doing the music for it basically in the studio Michael did the version that he did and it got to the point that we've heard it on the Ultimate Collection. But um, Michael wanted the key of the song changed so he could sing a little bit higher. And at the end of the song where it's all like really high falsettos, he wanted to do his screaming voice. Kind of like in, you know, you hear him doing the falsettos in the demo of Earth song. But then he uses his screaming voice on the final version. And apparently it never got finished because Walter A never went back in and changed the the key of the song to where Michael wanted it to be. And then he lost interest in it. He did other songs and the album continued. And, you know, the same way with She, she Was Loving Me, the same situation happened. It never got finished and it never got released. So that's the way things happen with albums is... You have an idea, it's really exciting, but then you have another idea which is more exciting and then you move on and finish that and then you don't do what you started and then you end up here and you end up happy with what you've got and you release what you've got and that thing that was really cool that got half done never gets finished. So, And that's why we have a vault of half-complete Michael Jackson songs. And how awesome would Invincible be if it had completed Fall Again and She Was Loving Me uh, on it? Like, oh man. Anyway. Hindsight. Hindsight. We're all experts in the rearview mirror. (laughs) And all of these opinions are subjective. What you think is a good song and what I think is a good song, the next person, Charles Thompson, doesn't think is a good song. (laughs) Yeah, but Charles (laughs) Thompson only likes like three Michael Jackson songs. So I know. (laughs) But you know what? That's pissing me off. But he really likes those ones. He really, really, really (laughs) likes the three that he really likes. He likes them a lot. Just don't ask him to listen to a remix. Or, or a uh, lip-synced performance. Oh, we love you, Charlie. I do. I love him. One thing I thought we did have in the rearview mirror was Leaving Neverland. And it looks like, by all accounts, that there might be a continuation of that film. And this time, it's good to have a little bit of warning about that because I don't know if you remember back to Leaving Neverland, the original, it was like... Jesus, um, we didn't. I remember getting a text from Charlie about it. Hey, this thing's coming out. And then, like, two weeks later, it was out. It was premiering at Sundance, and the, everything had changed in being a Michael Jackson fan online. 
And this time, okay, maybe there is a part two coming out. It's something we'd speculated may happen, but we know that it's probably going to happen now because Dan Reed recently successfully gained access from the judge presiding over Robson and Save Chuck's complaint. He gained access to be able to film the proceedings. Not all the proceedings. He's not allowed to film the judge or the jury, but he will be able to film the rest of the proceedings. And mm-hmm. it's not a great feeling knowing this is ongoing. And it's a terrible feeling, in fact, knowing that that Dan, against all the evidence, is there to try and prop up the story that Wade and James continue to promote. But nevertheless, it's happening. And I think he'd be even more so eager to have this part to become a real thing since the company that distributed the first film, Leaving Neverland, has gone bust and Dan's complaining that he hasn't been paid. And of course, it's never about the money. It's never about the money, but he hasn't been paid. And, and okay, like all things aside, you want to get paid for your work. Like if you're in the business of destroying Michael Jackson and you've made a documentary that attempts to do it, you still want to get paid, right? So he's not being paid by, is it Q Media that went under? I think so, yeah. Yeah, so he's probably going to be really keen to get something out there that's um, profitable for him. And it's a scary thought that especially he'd be extra motivated at the moment to to make the part two a success. So uh, and he's best friends with Oprah Winfrey now. So I guess the most famous woman on the planet is going to promote your thing. It's probably going to get some readership or listenership. So... Or viewership, so yeah, yeah. I guess we just, I guess we just have to move forward, you know, bracing ourselves, ready for this to erupt again. It's definitely a story that every media outlet in the world likes to latch onto, and I guess we just need to continue doing our part. The beautiful thing this time is it's not a surprise, and the beautiful thing is if he wants to film those court proceedings in order to use it in his documentary, then he's going to have no option other than to demonstrate the actual happenings of the court proceedings truthfully i would assume at this point if the estate knows that dan reed is going to be filming they'll also i mean it's not just dan reed has permission to film i think it's permission to film in the court right is he the only person that can do it well i guess the estate would argue if he can they want to if they if they have to petition for permission i don't see them being denied considering dan reed has been approved so you would then assume that the estate will also film and then you'll have the ability for the estate to rebut anything that he does in a disingenuous manner because they'll have the same footage that he has from their own cameras. Now, there hasn't been any confirmation or any suggestion from the estate that they are going to do it, but I would imagine in any sane thinking person is knowing that Dan Reed's going to have a camera in there will want to have their own camera in there. So at least we have the ability to be fighting it live rather than having him create this entire thing and then springing it upon us and then have to kind of backtrack and find all of the problems with it. They can do it live. So there'd be an equal playing field. And, and I mean, if in court, like they'll both get to make their arguments, it will be an equal playing field. So Yeah, and I'm assuming, you know, these, this is the very reason that Tom Mesero, for example, is now working as special counsel for John Branker as co-executor of the Michael Jackson estate 
he's he's probably there to advise them on things like this. And I hope that he's giving Branker and Weitzman that exact advice that you just said, that they need cameras in the courtroom as well. Just like Michael had cameras there on Bashir. I mean, this is the reason that I thought of it. It wasn't me thinking that it would be a great idea. It's we know from history that it's a good idea because Michael used this technique in order to save his own life the first time around. So, and it was it was a it was a beautifully done rebuttal to a disingenuous edit from Martin Bashir. So, hopefully, it's going to be an even playing field. They'll both have cameras, and and we'll get to see both sides, even if it's not Dan Reed giving us both sides, because we know that's not his favorite thing to do. The estate will have the option to give us their side. On the one hand, I'm I'm happy about Tom working with Branka. But do you struggle to rationalize in your head as well? Like, I mean, we we both have often talked about concerns around the executor's legitimacy. We've often talked about concerns around the job they're doing and how poorly they're performing uh, and serving Michael. Is it hard for you to also want to sort of get behind the estate in this way? And like, yeah, we want you to do well in this way. But yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And yeah, it's very difficult to root for someone who has betrayed you so many times. But also what we have to look at is we can't be hypocrites and we're constantly yelling at the estate saying, oh, you shouldn't have done this. You should have done this. Well, okay. Forget that they've actually hired Mesereau. What would we think would be the smartest thing for the estate to do? Hire Mesereau. Now they've done it. This is what we would have wanted. Just because we don't agree with every decision creatively and artistically that the estate makes, we can't then just because of that say, oh, well, I'm not happy that Mesereau is working with Branker because Casio tracks. Um, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. That's not, that's, that's not, I mean, each individual thing should be judged on its own merits. Casio tracks, fake, wrong, fix it. Going into battle against Wade and James in court, who's the best guy? It's Mesereau, and they have him. So it's it has to be a good move, and we have to be pleased with it. I would I would think. I mean, I'm not saying that people have to do anything. You can everyone can do what they want. I just don't see space for displeasure in this particular instance. I feel good that Tom Mesereau is going to be there to advise the executors, on what to do. And you would think that they have hired him because they are interested in his advice, right? They didn't just hire him to make the fans happy. You wouldn't think. <laughs> Who fucking knows? But, that would you be know, insane. Like, <laughs> uh, let's just have him over in the corner and let's just like ignore him, but not take any of his advice. But, I mean, this they've done it before. They had listening sessions for the Casio tracks and they asked everyone's opinion and people said what they thought and this information hasn't come out yet, but many people did not say what they reported that they said and they still went ahead and did it anyway, so who knows? But I think that times have changed. I think that we're in a moment right now where they want to succeed. I think they want Michael to succeed. Michael is their business. Even if it's purely just from a greed perspective, they want their business to be operating you know as strong as it can and i think this is a smart decision for justice it's a smart decision for business it's a smart decision for michael and really it's michael's estate and michael is the most important thing so 
it's good for Michael, it's good for me. All right, let's take another little break. This time I want to talk about the MJ Casts shop. So if you go to the mjcast.com slash shop, you're going to see a whole range of goodies that you can buy from T-shirts to mugs to water bottles to, to all kinds of different things, wall art, you name it, we've got it. The MJ Cast shop is a way that you can both support what we do because we get a percentage of the, the money earned on that and we put that towards things like equipment for our show, show running costs like servers and also giving back to charity. We just made a donation to the World Health Organization's uh, fund around fighting coronavirus. So you also are, though, by giving money to the MJ Car shop, not only supporting those things, but you're also supporting Michael Jackson because you can get around in public with really cool MJ stuff. I designed all the gear myself on there. There's about six or so different T-shirt designs. Uh, I'm wearing one right now, actually. I've got one on. It's a pixel art design of all the Jacksons on the Victory Tour, very 80s kind of retro look. I've got ones on there to Helvetica typography list on the shirt of all of Michael Jackson's albums. Uh, I got a whole bunch of different things and the shop's really succeeded. Really, really happy with how it's gone. Thank you everybody who's purchased something from the MJ cast shop. And I really recommend you jump on there and have a look around at what we've got to offer. The MJcast.com slash shop. Make sure you head over there now and have a look at what we've got on offer. So did you get a chance to look at Heal the World 2020? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I watched it. We just talked about, you know, uh, backing the estate at a time of need. And that's what's going on with the trial. But this is another time of need. This is coronavirus. This is COVID-19. Our world hasn't seen a pandemic like this for 100 years since the Spanish flu. You know, you look around there's in Spain, in Italy, in the UK, in America, there's five, six, seven hundred people dying every day in each of those countries. And the estate decided to put out a new version, a 2020 version of Heal the World, the song, with an accompanying video. And I don't know if you felt the same way, but I felt kind of bad not liking it because... <laughs> Yeah. I want to I want to get behind this because it's such a you know, it's a moment where the world needs to come together. And that's what that song's all about. But I couldn't I couldn't get behind it. What did you think? It's not that I wanted to not get behind it. It's just that I don't know how to explain without being just critical and this is not something that necessarily needs a huge amount of critique, I wouldn't think. Like it's just a nice gesture. There was no pay-per-view it wasn't like a product it was just the estate using michael's beautiful song to give people i mean when you listen to the song it's a beautiful song and it has a message of of hope and and healing and i guess it was a way for them to introduce it in a relevant way but yeah i mean i, I did feel awkward watching what was essentially a montage of stock footage of people washing their hands and scientists taking blood samples in test tubes and and then a bunch of people like in grocery stores with masks on and it was kind of like um weird like it didn't showcase michael's humanitarian efforts it didn't give him a voice to speak a little further about what was important to him and why he does these kinds of songs and 
we know there is material of him talking about that stuff out there. Um, I don't know. Like, it, for me, it wasn't a disaster. It wasn't anything to get angry about, but it also wasn't anything to get excited about. But also, it wasn't a Michael Jackson product, really. It was just them participating in the situation and using Michael's beautiful song for something. Like, and I don't want to be negative because this is not, not something to get angry about. It's It's... And I'm not angry about it. I wasn't excited by it. And I don't know if I have to be excited by it. Why does Damien Shields have to be excited by a nice song with a video that is relevant and that people might watch and enjoy the song and feel good? I would have liked to have seen more of Michael at hospitals and and orphanages and giving gifts and writing checks. And I would have liked it to have been a little bit more uplifting than so much masks and test tubes and hand washing. I don't know. I don't know. Like, I feel like I'm being negative and I'm not I'm not about about that especially when it comes to things like this but yeah that's how I feel yeah I think again it's all in the delivery it's they were online beforehand 24 48 hours beforehand hyping it hashtag heal the world 2020 virtually asking the community to tune in to see what they had to offer and yeah I don't know. For me, it's kind of like I like whenever you do a project or a product to make it worthwhile, to put effort into it for it to be looked at as a piece of art or something that's, wow, you know, you're going to wow people with it or you're going to at least make it something that Michael would have been proud of. And I don't think this served that purpose. And and I guess... It's hard because, yeah, it's happening at this time and it's connected to coronavirus and it's hard. I know what you mean. It is hard to be really critical about something at this time because, you know, what's the point? You know, the, the, the purpose of that song was to try and bring people together and bring some hope. But I'm, I'm looking at it, I guess, through the lens of here's another thing in addition to 40 other things they've done over the past 10 years that also don't live up to what Michael would have done and and I see people online they'll talk, and I and I expressed my dis not not dissatisfaction but I I I well yeah dissatisfaction I I said on Twitter I was you know it was you know average and it, not the gesture I even said in my tweet that the gesture was there the intent was there it was a great intent but the execution was lacking again and I think for me it was a combination of what you said around the footage that was chosen it looked tacky and it looked it because it was obviously stock footage it didn't look genuine i don't think it didn't feel genuine and also combining that with you know footage from bucharest that's like really 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 poor quality like it it was even it it felt even worse quality cuz the the hand washing footage was like 4k or some ridiculous resolution and then there was the heal the world performance at bucharest that was like dvd quality but and I know a lot of people don't care about that. But for me, it's kind of like if you're gonna do something and have Michael's name attached to it, and you want it to get attention because you want to bring people together and you want to draw a lot of people together for this cause, then do a good job. And I think a lot of fans feel like, why can't they do a good job? It's it's actually not a really hard thing to do to make a video that includes those things you mentioned, Michael at hospitals better quality than dvd quality of the the performance 
and just putting some care and effort and some taste into it to therefore attach it to his name and be worthy of it. Um, so, yeah, it's a bit weird being critical. And I got a lot of heat for it. Like, it was pretty much 50-50. I think I... I think it's part of the reason I didn't really commentate on it at all. Like, I didn't really have much to say and I kind of jokingly... My joking... my By the way, my sarcastic tweets have been getting me in a lot of trouble lately. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, is you can't have a sense of humor in coronavirus and you can't have a sense of humor on Twitter and you can't have a sense of humor ever anymore. I kind of jokingly tweeted that when they put the trailer out, oh, well, at least they haven't got, you know, Afrojack to remix it featuring Pitbull. <laughs> um, people kind of laughed about that. But like one thing that I would, as a Michael Jackson fan, like to have maybe seen, and this is just, you know, maybe thinking too far out the box or I don't know what the logistics around doing something like this would be. But if you're going to build something around Heal the World, uh, and yes, I would prefer that the video be better than it was, but but whatever. At the end, it would have been nice to be able to see Donate to Heal the World Foundation and that the estate had started or reopened Michael's original charity and that they would collect money from any Michael Jackson fan who wants to donate directly in Michael's name and that they will align with 10 organizations around the world that look after health and famine and different causes that Michael cared about and that we know that they can pull this money into a fund and that we can donate directly to it and it's in Michael's name and then those monies gets dispersed among the charities that have been selected. That would be a nice way to do it rather than just saying, hey, pick your favorite charity and go and donate to them. Like, I don't know. It doesn't feel as connected as I want to feel to Michael. I think it would be really nice to have the estate doing something similar to like what the, you know, the fans do with certain charities that they've set up and they collect money and they donate them to charities. Like, that's beautiful. That's amazing. If, if And again, it's like, why do I have to write a book? Why can't the estate make the documentary or write the book? You know, why does a fan have to create a charity and collect money and then donate those monies to other legitimate charities? Why do they have to do that? And that's time and effort and creating graphics and promoting and, 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 why can't the estate do it? We want to support these things. We clearly want to because we support the fan versions. So, I mean, that's kind of where I feel is it's lacking. It's not that the video wasn't good. It's that why can't we all donate to Michael and then Michael can donate to the charities that will benefit from our financial support. Like, that would feel nice. I don't care how fucking shit the video is. I don't care <laughs> what, how many pixels per square inch the fucking hand washing footage has compared to the Bucharest footage I don't care really I don't know you know what I'm saying though don't you I don't want to harp on it but I do I do I think I think there's room for both opinions I, I agree with you as well for sure I didn't actually think of that before now but it totally would have been good for them to have a a way to funnel fan action towards something that's going to actually make a real difference yeah and I'm scared of donating to charities because I don't know which ones are legitimate, which ones are paying CEOs, which ones are kind of where is the money going and what does it actually benefit. And like, if the estate could make educated, genuine, researched decisions on which charities that they could support with our money that would actually make a difference, 
Yeah. Then that would be cool. Or I mean, I'm, I'm and I'm only suggesting that the estate just give the money to other charities because I don't think that they can be bothered to actually do something themselves, like create a food drive or you know whatever. the The other side of the coin is that one of the beneficiaries of the Michael Jackson estate, Michael Jackson's son Prince, is running his own charity which is heal la and he is out there on the streets giving food to hungry people like what a fucking legend that's taking a leaf out of his father's book if the son can do it why can't the estate do it my understanding is that they did make a recent sizable donation but it's more i i know what you're saying it's about Yeah, but that's from breaking news profits. That's not from us (laughs) wanting to volunteer our money to say, we want to help support this cause and then we can be part of it. It feels like they do it to wave a flag and say, oh, we're the executives and we're so good, we just gave this money. But we want to be part of it. The reason that the estate has the money is because we gave it to them, right? We purchased the products that funded the estate and the estate gave the money. But where did they get it from? From the fans. The fans don't get any part in this, even though we are responsible for the outcome but we don't feel connected to it like it doesn't feel like we donated and i i would like to feel like i've done something but i don't feel like i have in that way i've done other stuff but yeah i don't know it just feels awkward and weird and it shouldn't be it shouldn't really be a negative topic of discussion that's the thing it shouldn't be negative it should be great but it should be something we're all going like yeah that was awesome and let's get behind it and let's share it And I guess my argument is that because we can't be proud of it, because we can't look at it and go, wow, that they put effort into that, because really, let's be honest, it's bare minimum effort. Like, because we can't be proud of that, we're not, we're not excited to share it and get behind that video. I know some people online are trying to drum up excitement, but it's not having the reach it should. And that's because it all goes back to the root of them just not caring. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of sad, but you know what? There are people that care. And there's, like you said, there's people in the community that care. Just look at Stephen Hodges and what he does with Michael Jackson, Fans for Change. This is what I'm talking about, yeah. Yeah, this is it. Like, this is the, the prime example. He has done, single-handedly done, what I'm saying the estate should have done. He's done it already, but he's one man. He's not a multi-billion dollar estate of the fa- most famous human being to ever walk the planet he doesn't have the reach to raise millions of dollars yeah you know so it's it's been a tough start to the year we started the show talking about coronavirus we've we've just spent time talking about heal the world 20 and coronavirus you know this year is the 25th anniversary of the history album and a lot of fans had speculated that you know it would potentially get a re-release this year and i guess that's up in the air now big time as to whether that's going to happen a lot of companies are cancelling products, events, those kind of things. It, it would be an awkward time. I mean, history came out mid-year in 95 when it originally came out. If they did a mid-year thing again or even to the second half of the year, this COVID-19 pandemic's not going to go away quickly. So it's kind of an awkward time to be releasing a product, wouldn't you say? Um, actually, I disagree. I think it's the perfect time. I wouldn't necessarily be looking to create a musical um, celebration of of the album. I think the album stands in its own league and the album doesn't need any changes or amendments or additions or remixes or anything. But 
for the 25th anniversary of the album, I think that it would have been on the back of all of the crap that we had to deal with last year with Leaving Neverland. I mean, the History album is Michael's response to the first allegations. So for me, the the History album is their opportunity to use Michael's wonderful, incredible art as a response to the allegations. I personally thought, and I've been saying this since January last year, that they should have been, and and who's to say that they haven't? I mean, that maybe they have been, but I don't think so. I haven't heard anything. They should have been building towards the 25th anniversary of history with a documentary that basically is something of a combination of Bad 25 and Square One. Using Michael's art that he created and gave to the world to explain what happened in 93. Because the art is a response to 1993, the allegations. So... I feel like it's a perfect opportunity to showcase Michael Jackson the genius while also exonerating Michael Jackson the man. And if they could have done that with a documentary that celebrates the album and the songs and finds a way to use unreleased footage and behind the scenes and talk to collaborators and the creative process, but also Michael's struggles and what inspired the songs and and how it all came together in one cohesive piece, I think it could have been a really spectacular documentary. Like, truly spectacular. Perhaps, like, the go-to documentary to learn about Michael Jackson. And in this moment, we're in, in a, I mean, we didn't know that this was going to happen, the pandemic and everyone on, like, self-isolating at home and, and on lockdown. But now is the moment that people are seeking documentaries and, and content on streaming services and on Netflix. And can you imagine if the whole world is locked in their houses and gets the opportunity to learn the truth about Michael Jackson and it just so happens to satisfy fans' desire to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the of the History album? Like, it could have all been really nice timing and it could have also put to bed some misconceptions about Michael and it could have celebrated the music all in one cohesive piece. Yeah, pandemic is not the best time to be especially for artists releasing new music. Like I know Lady Gaga delayed the release of her album probably because she intends to create videos that she's not legally allowed to create now because everyone has to keep distance and and they're allowed to have, you know, 200 people on a set together and she's not able to go on tour and perform on on stage and promote her material. Do you think it's distasteful though? Like is it do you think there's putting something out that's like look at look at me, look at my product, buy my product? at a time when people are suffering. You don't think that's distasteful? No, but if it's a documentary, it's not by my product. If you have Netflix, you're already paying for the service. And if you get an additional thing that comes up as being available to you on Netflix, then that's just a bonus. Oh, well, yeah, I, I agree with the documentary. I'm talking more History 25, like, as a larger product. Like, if it's an album where you really I don't think there it. should be one. You don't. You just think they ignore that? No, because it's streaming now. Everything's streaming. It's not products. It's not physical anything. And if the music's in the documentary, people will seek the music on Spotify and, and Apple Music and wherever they listen, YouTube and, and those kinds of things. So you don't need to advertise, Michael, when you have millions upon millions of people looking at Michael. It's already advertisement in itself. And if the documentary uses Michael's music to 
tell his story because he was gagged in 93, 94. He wasn't allowed to speak, but he, he made music about it. This is his response. And giving people who know the context of the music and know where it came from and what it was for and, and to tell the story for him because they're not gagged, only Michael was gagged. I just think it could have been beautiful. And, and we're in a moment, like right now, we have a documentary about a guy who has a whole bunch of fucking tigers. And it's literally... <laughs> Two of them were Michael Jackson's. We've got coronavirus, toilet paper, and the Tiger King. Like, <laughs> it's, the, it's, a, it's a moment where things can capture your attention because people have time to engage with them. And it's, if it's Michael Jackson and it's, it's a big name in itself, I think people would engage with it. And if the estate was the one that produced it, they are capable of creating good documentaries. Like, off-the-wall documentary was good and the bad documentary was good. They weren't what I want from a documentary, but they were good documentaries. So, let me get this straight. So, no album re-release. Definitely a documentary that covers the era. What about the tour? What about the music videos? Well, I think if you're using the music to tell the story... The videos are important. They're visual components to a documentary. You can use the footage of the videos. And I even think like if you're using studio album versions of the songs in the documentary to demonstrate the songs that you're talking about in the documentary, it wouldn't be strange to use history tour footage. Even though he's not singing live and the tour is, in my opinion, a disgrace, and I don't think he wanted to do the tour and I think that's kind of evident, it would be an opportunity to use the visual. You're not using it as a showcase piece of this is Michael Jackson performing live, but if it's just stock footage that's playing while the song that he's performing is playing in the film, like it could be an, a nice opportunity to use it. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily go into the tour as part of the documentary. No, I would... I mean, you could use the footage from the tour, but I wouldn't necessarily say and then he went on a world tour. Like... You, I would just want to be talking about the album, what he's saying on the album, what that means in the context of his life and his experiences leading up to that moment of releasing the album, and then whatever visuals fit and whatever can make it, you know, a delicious feast to watch, yeah, you can use it. But I'm just speaking ideas out loud that I haven't thought through, but... <laughs> we, we do that twice a week, dude, on the phone, so... <laughs> I know, I know. So... um I think I think a documentary would have been great for History 25. It, it, it would have been the perfect time for it. But again, Danny Wu did what the estate should have done. Like It's fans doing what the estate should do. Again, congratulations to the fans. <laughs> <laughs> Damien, uh, I absolutely love your thinking. I love having you on the show. I just, I really, really love the way that you're able to not only sort of, I know you don't, you probably don't like it if I say like you're criticizing the estate or whatever, but just the way you can spin it into being like, here's what could be. That's what I love about our conversations together. I get a real sense of like clarity around what Michael deserves uh, as a product to, to prom- you know, not promote him, but to showcase him to the world because he was always after doing it to that level. And uh, I love when we chat because I can get a glimpse of what it could be like even now. <laughs> so, yeah. Damo, where do where do people find you online if they want to connect with you? 
right now I'm self-isolating in my house. So <laughs> this is the only place you can find me other than running at the beach. No, I'm joking. So I'm on Twitter at Damien Shields. And that's pretty much the only place I interact with Michael Jackson fans. I don't have Facebook. I haven't for five years and it was the best decision I ever made to delete it. Oh, um, tell me about it. And yeah, oh my goodness, it's the best. You deleted yours recently? Uh, yeah, about six months ago. I was kind of the, I wanted two years ago. I wanted to three or four years ago, but I didn't because of the MJ cast and I wanted to stay on there. But luckily Elise um, does a huge amount of work on Facebook now and that's freed me up to be able to delete my Facebook and it's definitely like what you said, the best decision ever. Yeah. The best part about leaving Facebook is when everyone is talking bad about you, you don't see it anymore. (laughs) It's perfect. (laughs) And your feed just isn't filled with stupid memes all the time and chain posts. Oh my God, it's ridiculous. Give me Twitter and Instagram any day. That's all I need. You still have to worry about what Damien Shields is going to send you via text message though. (laughs) Oh man, if people could only see what you send me. Anyway. Oh boy. Yeah, but yeah, Twitter, please come talk to me on Twitter. I'm happy to interact on Twitter. Follow me there. We can chat and whatever people do on Twitter. And yeah, that's it. But I'm not really anywhere else. My website, DamienShields.com. I mean, feel free to go there. There's an archive of articles. There's a couple of things about Leaving Neverland and a whole bunch of stuff about Michael's art and some updates there, some old updates about Vera Sarova's trial seeking justice for the Casio tracks, but really I haven't posted anything there in at least a year. And, you know, there's, there's been a couple of moments in my life where there's been one or two year gaps between even putting anything out there. But um, everything that I have done remains online, so you can check it out. Um, and that's it. So, And you're being modest. Again, you're always modest when you come on the show. You've also got a book that people can go and buy, which is an excellent book. I believe they can get it from damienshields.com. It'll have a link there. You've got It's on iBooks. It's on Amazon. It's on Kindle. It's everywhere. It is Michael Jackson, Songs and Stories from the Vault. It is my favorite book that's ever been written on Michael Jackson artistry. It is a deep dive into the way he worked using the voices of the people in the room with him and Michael Jackson's own voice. Uh, It is all about the songs, the original versions on the Escape album, but it's so much more than that because it delves into stories around those songs and Michael Jackson, the artist. It is well worth a read. Um, And just on that, if you're looking for an easy way to find it, rather than having to search on Amazon and and wondering whether or not you're on the the correct thing, you can go to themjvault.com and it will redirect you to the Amazon listing for the book. So that's probably the easiest way to find it, themjvault.com. There we go. And listeners, you can also find us online. We're at The MJ Cast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We are a podcast, so we hope that you subscribe to us as a podcast on somewhere like Apple Podcasts or Spotify or one of the podcast apps that you can get on Android. If you don't like those kind of things, we are on YouTube though. So if you search for the MJ cast on YouTube, we're there. We put our episodes up there, but they're usually about a week late behind release when we put them on podcast apps. And we'd love it if you could tune in, have a listen to our chats about Michael Jackson. One of our next episodes we've got coming up is a great interview 
that I've just done with one of Michael Jackson's key collaborators. I can't wait to get it out there. If you want to send us an email, you can reach Elise or I at themjcast at iCloud.com. We love hearing from our listeners. And don't forget to rate and review us as well on one of those podcast platforms I named earlier. Well, Damo, haven't had you on the show for quite a while, but I'm glad we got the chance to catch up again today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been awesome. Well, I hope you have fun self-isolating over the next couple of weeks. Maybe the next thing you'll hear from me is that I've put something out, something interesting. (laughs) So let's see. No promises. about that new intro music huh dan the man dan the man isn't he great yeah man i love dan dan is so talented and he did that you know what he he had coronavirus he had covid19 and he made our intro music while he was suffering from it yeah yeah he had all of the um the unique symptoms that they've taken so long to recognize as, as symptoms including the the complete loss of taste and smell hold up inside his house eating chilies that he couldn't taste <laughs> and, and really seriously. he told me that he said he could he could said he could put a whole bunch of chili in his mouth and he wouldn't taste it oh that's, my god yeah really that's how crazy it was and putting up with me and elise because we were just going back and forth every day like three times a day where's the music let's, let's go let's go and he's like saying oh i got a cold i got a flu and i'm like just come on dan let's go <laughs> i didn't know he had I, coronavirus <laughs> and i was hassling him i was like hey dude can you send me like a clip of the uh what you've done of the mj cast music and he <laughs> says to me is jamin sending you is jamin sending you i'm like no man i'm just curious <laughs> He's like, no, everyone's everyone's wanting me to get this done and like I'm sick and like, I'm trying and I'm, he said, I'm going to meet the deadline. Don't worry, it's going to be done. and <laughs> It's perfect. Uh, it's so good. Such yeah. a nice refresh of the existing one. I love the original one too, which Dan did. It was awesome. Yeah. It's nice that he found a, a, a way to make it completely new, but it's retained all of the beauty of the first version. So That's exactly what we wanted. We wanted to honor all the work Q and I had done together over the years and and still give it that new flavor. So, yeah, props mm-hmm. to Dan. And uh, big shout out to Dan. If you go to danvisualobos.com, D-A-N-V-I-L-L-A-L-O-B-O-S, it'll be in the show notes. He's got great music on there, really, really good music. His EP, Orbits, is uh, I still have it on high rotation. It came out a couple of years ago. I still listen to it all the time. The song Midnight is still one of my favorite Dan tracks. Absolutely love it. And it, look, if you want some work done by Dan, he, he does a really good job and he's he's available to chat to about doing different work, whether you want some music produced or whether you're doing a podcast or project that you want some work for, just go to danvisualobos.com. Check him out. Great, great guy. He just sent me a message. He <laughs> asked me, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I put a picture up of me with... Um, like a little recording emoji to say that I was recording something, which is this that we're doing right now. So he's responded to it and said, what are you recording? And I said, oh, an episode of the MJ cast. And he says to me, fuck a duck. <laughs> <laughs>
Are you pissing on the estate? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was me tonight. <laughs> uh, 